Evolutionary.org presents Evolutionary Hardcore Podcast with your co-hosts, Steve from the American Underground and Mobster from the UK Iron Den. Get ready for the most hardcore and underground info in the industry. And here we go. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6... Evolutionary.org hardcore podcast coming your way. Episode 187. Steve Schmee and the Mobster joining me. What's going on, man? Wait, wait. I've, I've seen this man in the flesh, and he was uh, he was uh great at seminars and stuff like that. So yeah, I've got some personal stuff we can do, and uh, yeah, let's hit it. So today we're doing Mike Matarazzo, and Mike is considered an old school bodybuilder he was one of the hardest working guys during his peak years unfortunately he passed away at an early age and before his death what's interesting is he blamed the steroid and chemical abuse for his health problems so he wasn't in denial about it like most guys are at his peak five foot ten 250 pounds in season and he was 275 in the off season so we're going to go over his life, his successes, his death, and his steroid cycle. So early life, Mike was born and raised in Boston, Massachusetts, had a modest upbringing in a working class neighborhood. He had big dreams for his life. He wasn't quite sure what to pursue. So after high school, he got into trucking, became a trucker, but he knew that job did not provide a great future for him. He got into boxing. He won the Massachusetts Golden Gloves lightweight heavyweight, uh, the light heavyweight championship. So he was a really good boxer. He learned a lot of discipline. He got a ripped body for boxing. He did a lot of conditioning. He started to get more into weight training. He wanted to improve his strength. He discovered how much he loved weight training, and he discovered how well his body responded to weight training. His first competition. In bodybuilding was 1989. He won first place at the Gold's Gym Classic in Massachusetts. The next step for him, he knew he had to move to a building bo- bodybuilding-rich state, which is of obviously California. Venice Beach, that's where the best bodybuilders were. He wanted to be the best. That's where you got to go. So that's where he went. Flex Wheeler and Sean Ray took him under, under his wing. They welcomed him to the community. They guided him as he got his pro card. So, Mobster, anytime you want to jump in and uh, give your thoughts before we get into his first major competitions. Anything you want to add? I'm just going to jump. Just one thought occurs to me. Uh, I've been, other stuff that we're going to be doing, background research for podcasts, upcoming podcasts. You could talk about guys back in the day that were mental. For example, Sean Ray himself being mentored by John Brown, as an example. And in fact, he mentored one of the ones that we're going to do very soon. It's interesting that the time, as in the very early 90s here, here he is being mentored by ultimately people that were probably not now, or certainly not when, uh, if they considered him competition, mentoring him again. So you you know how this works sometimes. I think there's an element, I mean, Sean Razor get a good example. He's being considered uh, even by... John Brown, 
commenting that he can be kind of selfish and it'll just take information from you that he won't want to give it to you and so on and so forth. So I find it interesting that both Flex Wheeler, who had a great deal of insecurity issues, self-admittedly from his biography, and a quite egotistical and sometimes very selfish, especially when he's competing, bodybuilder Sean Ray both mentored him, took them under their wing and welcomed them to the community. I think it was just around the time that you could still see pros working out in Gold's Gym. And if you if you came in and you did your business, they accepted you. It kind of changed, I think, when the money went up and when also the internet kicked in and you didn't have to train in California, you could train anywhere, you could be seen by other people. There was a lot more coaching, a lot more gurus. This was just before that time. So, for example, Mike Christian, the Barbarian Twins, Victor Richards, all those guys were training at Gold's. And again, if you went in there and you didn't fuck around and you did your shit and you showed that you was the real deal, then you was accepted by the guys. See, yeah, fascinating for me that uh, a, a very insecure at that time, Flex Wheeler, and a quite selfish at that time, Sean Ray, were two of the fellas that took him in and showed him the ropes. Yeah. It is. It is. It's, it's also one of those things, Mobster, where they knew he had a gift for bodybuilding. So they're not going to just take some anyone under their, their wing. You, you know, he showed he showed he he worked hard. He showed he had the genetics. So of course they want to be part of it. It's kind of like you're accepted into my clique if you fit that narrative. But if you don't, then we're going to just like look down on you. And that's that's you know that's how unfortunately how it works. Not just in bodybuilding, but in life oh, as yeah, well. Yeah. You know, I think for me and you, I mean, this is a good example, Steve, for me and you is that we are, we've been doing this a long time, like I've said in previous podcasts. Um, I took, I'll give an example, okay? So I've been, I've competed internationally, I've competed all over the UK, and uh, occasionally I would travel, even if it was on sort of a, a beer weekend with the guys, the stag dudes and whatever else, and, and I've competed, so trained in gyms up and down the United Kingdom at one time or another, not a million places, but enough places. And uh, as a good example, uh, up the road from where my mum lives in Southeast London is Brixton. And Brixton is by re reputation, if nothing else, consistently black British and has been for probably 40, 50 years, if not longer. And for one reason or another, I was training in the Brixton Sports Centre. Now, the young, especially the younger black guys, older black guys tend to be more secure, of course, same as most old fellas. I would train, I, I think I went there early one morning before the regular crew uh, come in, I'm doing my shit, and a regular group, a crew of young guys come in, and it's the nature of the beast, the, the law of the jungle, if you like, where uh, they don't know who the fuck I am, I'm not a regular Joe, I'm not one of the guys that's there routinely, they, haven't, they don't know who I am, and quite simply, uh, they see me smashing the fuck out of stuff, moving some big weights and so on and so forth, and that instantly made me accepted now we've talked about uh bodybuilding is essentially colorblind it is otherwise we wouldn't have uh, uh the, the last god knows how many pretty much the last 30 40 years especially uh, black bodybuilders doing consistently well black american bodybuilders especially consistently well at the uh mr olympia level and so for what i've seen here for me is if you and i went to gold's gym and we were consistent we came in we did our stuff we, we sweated blood, and regardless of where we were on the pecking order in terms of whether we were Mr. Olympia contenders 
or just average Joes, if we come in and we're in there and we're consistent, we're plugging away every day, we're making progress, we're moving some decent weight, doesn't have to be world record poundage, you tend to find that the bigger guys, the 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 pecking order, the 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 mesomorphs, the, the would-be champions, the, the competing bodybuilders, the competing weightlifters, accept you. You they, they recognize that you have the same drive to be something that they have. And whether you are a, a competition or some sort of rival, or whether you're just a Joe coming to the gym, you become accepted into that group. You're seen as that kind of thing. If you come in and you to put it in crude English terms, fanny about, and you're sitting there on your phone, or you, you, you're doing like one mile an hour on, on a running machine or whatever else, those guys are just going to look and think, why is this person even here? They're wasting their time. If you're a fat guy and you come in and you're losing weight, then you're plugging away. But if you're a fat guy that comes in and stays fat, then, then what the hell are you doing? So there's a sort of, there's a kind of thing there. I think it's also kind of psychological. This is why I find it fascinating that arguably uh, competition, genetically especially, because he wasn't uh, maybe Mr. Olympia material, but he was certainly genetically blessed, and certainly in a couple of areas, which we'll get into. Two guys, like I said, that from the from their own bios, by their own admission, one being kind of uh, negative in his process and a little bit insecure, and the other guy being quite selfish. At, at times, he talks about psyching people out and you know not wanting to let other pros uh, know that they could be beaten or whatever else. That kind of stuff. These are the two guys that have taken him under the wing. So I find it a big thing. Like that. He's got in there, he's done what he's doing, and they've gone, you know what, this guy's pretty cool. We're going to talk to him. We're going to train with him. We're going to give him advice, et cetera, et cetera. I think you and I would hopefully fit into that as well. Maybe not in Mike Matarazzo's uh, genetic pool, certainly perhaps not in the quality of Flex and Sean, but we would get, we would have, I would hope, with the level of time that we put in and our experience and our, our drive to be something, we would, we would get in there. I certainly think that would, just if for no other reason, the sheer size and which that I push around that I tend to be that kind of person in the gym. And I'm more than happy to help other people in the gym if, you know, they'll pay attention and do what they've got to do and all that kind of stuff. I think you're the same. We wouldn't be doing this podcast if we weren't like that. So I find it interesting anyway. Yeah, back to you. Yeah, I have a quick story too. I was at a, at a private gym years ago. This was back when I was powerlifting competitively and, you know, we were all working out together. And this guy walks in, I guess he was a friend of one of the other lifters. We'd never seen this guy before. He didn't even look like he lifted and he's going and putting on a bunch of weight. You know, he does a warm up, whatever. Then he goes and puts a bunch of weight on the, on the bench press. And we're just saying, that, looking at each other, thinking the same thing. We're not saying it out loud. We're thinking this guy, you know, he ain't going to be able to do this much weight. And then he puts up like three, four reps, like boom, boom, boom. And, and one of the guys turns my direction. He's like, well, I'll be damned. He was thinking the same thing I was thinking. <laughs> It's like, damn, like we were about to, you know, tell this guy, who the fuck are you, you know, coming in, yeah, coming yeah. to this place, you know, and he goes into that and that shut it up. That shut us up really quick. So it sounds like your, your story too. So yeah, definitely. Um, and I think, I think with Mike, if you look at Mike's physique, the guy, um, it's one of those things where the guy just has an incredible oh, yeah. physique. So Genetics, 19, yeah. Literally 1991, um, two years later, after his first competition in Massachusetts, two years later, he's competing at the NPC USA Championship against the likes of Chris Cromier, uh, Ronnie Coleman, F Flex Wheeler, who was one of the guys 
you took him under his wing, and that's that's incredible. And what's even more incredible, Monster, is he beat all of them. And at 26 wow. years old, he was officially a pro bodybuilder. So you can actually read, you can actually read the article, and I linked over a clip of that competition. You guys can make a decision yourself. And you guys can, um, you know, you can go on YouTube or whatever and look that up if you want. Uh, 1991 NPC USA Championships. You want to take a look. You don't want to wait till the article comes out. So for the next decade, he was a regular competing in all these three major shows per year. He built a reputation as a hardworking bodybuilder. He had an impressive physique. He routinely finished top 10 and top five in many competitions against the toughest opponents. He was second at the 97 Toronto Pro, not an easy competition at all, especially in those days. Third at the 90, 98 Night of Champions, again, not an easy competitions in the late 90s. And then again, third at the Toronto Pro in 1998. So any, you know, top five at the Toronto Pro is, is really, really good. Uh, that, was, uh, that was probably the number one Canadian bodybuilding competition in those days the toronto pro everyone loved visiting toronto um it was a uh, one of the one of the f- most fun places to visit back in those days so <clears throat> mr olympia finishes mobster at 91 he got 16 93 18th 96 16 97 13 popped up into the top 10 in 98 getting ninth 11th and 99 and then in tw- 2001 21st so not some great finishes at Mr. Olympia, but he did get no. cracked the top 10 in 98. So that still puts you, hey, you're the ninth best bodybuilder in the world. Wow, you suck. You know, I mean, it's it's still impressive <laughs> just to make top 10. Um, yep. So, Mobster, give us your thoughts on that and then get into his training. And then I'll talk about his diet, which is really an interesting one. Right, so this is something I made in the show notes, and I haven't actually got that much on the training, but we'll 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 we'll, we'll persevere. So, um, Mike, I said it's genetically blessed, one hundred percent, because he's if, as in silhouette, he has that shape with the massive arms, he's broad shouldered, small waist, good fires, and huge huge calves, uh, and and it's kind of one of those things where you know just for that, and again being assisted by the two guys that we've already mentioned. You go, he's a great, great bodybuilder. And as we've said before, again and again and again, and it's, it's kind of like the sort of um, sideline judges for basketball and the Saturday night referees, et cetera, et cetera, when we talk about competitions. You don't suck when you're the ninth best bodybuilder in the world or even the 16th best bodybuilder in the world being on the Olympic stage. You're not even worse, the 21st bodybuilder in the world because, again, there's, if there's 5,000 or 1,000 or professionals and you're... 21 out of 5,000, that's pretty damn good. So, But the, the problem is, I think there was elements when I'm, I'm thinking of videos I've seen of him on stage at the Olympia. So you're lacking a little bit of midsection. What I mean by that is he, he did not have deep apps. Uh, there might be issues, for example, with uh, separation. And that's sometimes a problem with certain bodybuilders that you can see them in certain situations. I think they're absolutely God-given genetics amazing bodybuilders and then you put them up against a guy that's going to be top five top three or even the winner and so for example i've seen mike in the flesh i remember those videos and he would lack for example separation between the biceps and triceps in the front double he he had abs but very little depth to the abs he wasn't talking massive cuts into the fires there'd be some separation and so on so there's stuff like that 
on the flip side of that, and this is something I mentioned to Stephen the pre-show, as a exhibitionist, as someone who's going to stand up in front of a crowd of potentially up to, for argument's sake, at the Olympia or the Arnold, someone who's standing in front of a crowd of, I believe, up to 4,000 people, and certainly as someone who I've seen personally in seminar doing exactly the same thing, he loved or gave the appearance of loving being on stage, and the audience got that. So, for example, he was one of those bodybuilders at the time, I believe, was opposing to rock and roll, to, to rock music, to, to, to metal, whatever else, but he would stick his tongue out. And then one of the things that some professional bodybuilders that do, but not all, and he was quite good at with his stagecraft, is that he would not only pose to the front middle of the stage for the judges, but also go off to the right-hand side for the judges on that side and that portion of the audience, and then walk over the left-hand side and give them the same pose. And then even, for example, again, and this is stagecraft, guys, you bend slightly forward when you're posing for the judges because there they are in row two, row three, and then you stand the fuck up and you pose for the people that are right at the back of the crowd, up in the gods, up on the upper deck, whatever. And Mike had that kind of pose, that stagecraft, that exhibitionist uh, element to him. So there he is. He, he looks like he's having fun. He's, he's, he's letting everybody see what he's got. He's sticking his tongue out. Some of the guys at that time were posing to classical music, but he's coming out with rock and roll, the drums and the, and the guitars and all that kind of stuff smashing and looking like, you know, he's flexing like a monster. And he was one of those things. So you go, he might not po place in the top five, top six of the Olympia, but he was a very popular bodybuilder with the crowd and they would get behind and they would cheer and, and you know, stamp their feet and, 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 you know, enjoy his posing and respond. You could hear the crowd responding to it. So there is that particular element. And again, not every bodybuilder is like that. We've argued, for example, I've seen critical arguments given for the last few years, uh, Steve, of the lack of uh, uh, work that's going into posing. I, I use Flex Wheeler again as an example, uh, who's someone who wasn't even hitting the 10 count and the videos we've seen of him in the posing room at Golds, for example. You know, and you've got to go out and be able to hold it. We know that a lot of modern bodybuilders can't hold their poses. They can't even do the relaxed pose well and for long enough in case they're on stage. And certainly uh, with possible the exception of the pose, Dan, you're not, not some bodybuilders, it's not necessarily that they are uh, embarrassed to be standing there, but they're not necessarily as comfortable as they need to be. And once you're comfortable, if you have the physique, if you're in condition to exhibit that in such a way that the crowd gets into it, that the judges get into it, and especially obviously that the judges like your physique. And I, I've talked about, for example, Steve, where some guys can walk out and you know they're going to win. They walk out like the stage belongs to them, literally theirs. This is my piece of wood. You guys are just wrong for the ride. They stand down in front, flexing as if to say, look what this, you know I'm the winner. Don't make me pose too much. And then they look at the other guys as if to say, he's second, he's third, he's fourth. And they're looking that way. And that is, that's exuded confidence. If you can back it up, you're pretty much a winner. And with Mike, I to say, unfortunately, just lacked a little separation. But he did like the stage. He owned the stage. And you could see that people got off on it. So in terms of training, I was very brief here, Steve, because I don't recall much from back in the day. And I think he was kind of, uh, with the possible exception of battle for the Olympias, there wouldn't have been a lot of videos of him at the time, which is a shame, because I think if he was around now, this is a guy that would do incredibly well on YouTube. 
because his personality just shone through. And the same thing on Instagram, guys, because I'm telling you now, he, 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 I've seen him in seminar. He's spoken when I've been there. And he, I, to me, he was a fun bloke to be around. So I can only imagine he's one of us permanently happy, enjoying the shit that he does, uh, kind of vibe that he was giving off. And that, to me, would come across incredibly well on YouTube. So, for example, when Steve writes in his article that Mike liked to train and could be seen in the gym up to six times a week, taking only one day to rest his body. He was known for his incredible biceps. Uh, and, and moving to California, going to get the advice of people, again, like Flex and Sean, learning how to isolate them properly, which would consist of exercises like preacher curls, dumbbell curls, concentration curls, one-arm dumbbell preacher curls, and even things, for example, like reverse bar preacher curls. Look that one up, guys. Doing, for example, four sets of each and hitting a 12 rep range close to failure. Also known to train his abs and calves daily, dedicating at least eight sets to them. Now, something I'm going to address here, Steve, which might disagree with what we uh, are referencing in the article. He was blessed in both those areas. Now, you do work sometimes as is, and especially when it comes to the seminars again. So here's the thing, right? If I know as a professional bodybuilder that I may never win the Mr. Olympia, but the crowd likes me, I, and I have a freak factor with, if I'm like Tom Platts with those amazing legs of his, for example, or if I'm Mike with amazing calves and arms, then I can put a little bit more effort into something that even though really I kind of had already, and I'm going to address that specifically in a minute, to make them even more freaky, because that way I'm going to get more posing, I'm going to get more uh, seminars, I'm going to be asked to do more guest posing at competitions. And guys, there have been bodybuilders out there that have made as much money as a Mr. Olympia who lacks that ex exhibitionist uh, aspect to their personality. As, 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 uh, so, for example, Steve, in this day and age, the Mr. Olympia can win $400,000. And someone who's in the position that Mike was back in the day, say, for example, 13th in 97, he could go off and make $400,000 just to impose in exhibitions and seminars because he was in demand, because he was popular, and because he brought something extra when he did those things. And it's quite simple. If you do, the guys that have hired you, the gym owner, the, the hall, whoever it was, that put the promoter, whoever it was that's put this thing together, goes, you know what? He was great. He was value for money. We got a good crowd. The crowd got behind him. We sold a ton of uh, T-shirts. We sold a ton of photographs. And then they and they mention it and they recommend it to other gym owners and other promoters and you get more business. And as an example, as I'm sure Steve knows already, uh, I think for I think Jay Cutler was talking about ten thousand dollars a weekend. I've seen Ronnie stashing money into a bag at Body Power, arriving late, the queue halfway out the door, the exhibition is shut, the security guards don't let anybody in, and he hasn't got time to tidy the money up. It's been shoved into this big bag because he was a popular bodybuilder. And, and the queue wanted to take those photographs. It's just how it is. So sometimes that aspect of a person means that you do incredibly well. Now, genetics. So Mike did some great articles back in the day for, of all places, Muscle Mag International, amongst others, Flex, et cetera. And Mike said, and I've seen photographs to back this up, that when it comes to calves especially, but I think his arms could be included in that, Steve, he was genetically blessed. And a good example of this is his dad and his mum, for that matter, would support him by coming to competitions. But his dad had been in a wheelchair for years. Now his dad was a big chunky guy, but a bit of a belly, et cetera. 
Now, bearing in mind Stevie couldn't walk, he had this enormous set of calves. And this wasn't a question of him holding water and, and, and having that sort of edema that some people sort of blows up your legs, even though you're in a wheelchair. No, this was a big set of meaty calves, a huge, great flaring calf and a relatively normal size uh, bone, uh, shin bone, et cetera, down into the, in, into the foot. So that even though he's sitting in a wheelchair, even though he can barely walk and he's just staggering around the house using sticks, et cetera, he's got his enormous calf. So Mike was blessed. But then, of course, he then took that to the next level by training him. And, and as I said already, that freak factor is why he was getting the pose and stuff. That freak factor is why he did do well on stage. And it freak factor is why the crowd responded to him. So he took advantage of it. I'll give you an example, Stephen. It's a silly little thing, but again, I'll use myself as an example. Because I was known as the grip guy and I did exhibition work and got hired to work on stands at a couple of uh, different exhibitions, Body Power, Fit Expo, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I, I, I can walk around the venue and uh, guys would ask me to flex my forearms. Uh, this is because of the muscles that I was exhibiting because they knew what my grip was like. And so there's, there are some pictures on the internet somewhere where I'm standing in the middle goofing around with my dark glasses on and flexing my forearm, which looks like a great slab of meat in front of these guys' faces and everybody's like goofing around and whatever. And we, I did that a few times. So I can only see that Mike, with those calves, with those arms, that's what's going to get him that and the fun aspect and, and being outgoing and being gregarious is what's going to get you this kind of work. A lot of guys in bodybuilding, it's kind of funny, lack that state. And if, if you you are, are ultimately, as it's been said before, standing in a, in a pair of briefs or an underpants, knickers, as some people have called them, and showing your body. So there has to be a small element to that. But Mike had it in space. He liked being up on stage and people like to see him on stage. Yeah, back to you. So let's get into a little bit of a diet. Oh, yeah. I know, Mobster, you're going to want to talk about this as well. Oh, we yeah. talked, to, oh, yeah, talked yeah. about this in the show show. So Mike followed primarily a meat-based diet. And uh, he regretted this later in life. He says most days he did not eat fruits or vegetables. He just ate lots of meat. So I guess, I guess you could consider it the carnivore diet. You know, that's, we see people try to yeah. carnivore diet. Now that's like the, the trend, you know, on social media. Now everyone wants to put out a video saying, oh, I tried the carnivore diet for 30 days. Blah, blah, blah. So, but what was incredible here is on some days he ate seven pounds of red meat, seven pounds of red Whoa. meat. So let me, let me just tell you, 16 ounces is in a pound. I don't know, mobster, if you knew that because no, it's it's the same, it's the same, yeah. you guys have a metric system, but um, if I take 16 ounces and multiply it by seven, I get 112 ounces. That's crazy. Yeah. In one day, there's steak restaurants. And uh, I was listening to mobster and I were talking about this on the pre-show, but I was listening to sports talk maybe a few days ago, ironically. And they were talking about the steakhouse, the Don Shula Steakhouse. Don Shula, of course, mobster, you don't know who he is, but he was a, he's a legendary NFL head coach, one of the top NFL head coaches of all time. He actually is the only head coach to take his team to an undefeated season, 17-0, and 0, where they didn't lose a game the whole season, which has never happened. And he, his steakhouse – has a 48-ounce challenge. If you eat a 48-ounce porterhouse, you get your name on the wall. 48-ounce porterhouse is three pounds. He's eating seven pounds, more than twice that amount in a day. So we're, it's, it doesn't make any sense. So there must be Mike 
Matarazzo, you know, on the wall at every steakhouse across America, if he's that easily eating that much red meat. So here's, here's the thing with me. I got a porterhouse. Sometimes I'll get a porterhouse with a bone and I'll eat the porterhouse. It's probably about uh, less than two pound porterhouse. Okay. And I'll throw it on the grill, slow cook it on the grill, flip it over, slow cook it on the other side. And I'll eat like half of it. Okay. In one sitting, which is a lot. I've tried eating like almost the whole thing and I don't feel good the rest of the day. I feel like ass the rest of the day and I got to shit it out of me, you know, before I can start getting in the process of feeling better. So to consume seven pounds of red meat in one day is just insane. So yeah. Um, let me, let me just tell you some of the facts here in case you guys are wondering. So if you're going to eat 112 cal, uh, ounces of red meat a day, just from that red meat, you're bringing in, you know, like minus the bone, like let's say minus the bone. If he's, even if he's counting, if he's, let's take, let's, let's kind of take out maybe the bone. He's getting bone in. We're talking hundreds we're talking probably 5,000 calories or more than that. You're, you're probably talking 6,000 calories a day of just red meat. The amount of fat, the grams of fat, which probably I would say 30 or 40% of that is saturated fat from that red meat. We're talking, I would say probably 700 grams of fat. And then out of that, I'd say 300 grams of saturated fat. So just the amount of stress that you're putting on your gut health, your colon, whatever, like we can, we can make fun of it, whatever, but just the amount of problems that you're going to cause just in your gut, which is going to basically spread out across the rest of your body makes it really, really a dumb thing to do. Um, and, and if we take a look at the blue zones of the world, you know, I've talked about this on different podcasts where people live to hundred years old, no problem. They don't have, they don't have cancer. They don't have obesity. They don't have heart disease. They don't even know what that stuff is. They don't have cancer. They don't have these diseases that we have in the Western world. And those, those people, their diets, there is zero red meat in their diets. Most of their diets we're talking 90, 95% of their diet is fruits and vegetables. That's what they follow. In his case, it's the opposite. He's zero fruits and vegetables yeah. and primarily meat, red meat. So I don't really understand the logic behind what he was doing. I'm not sure. I didn't really dig into it. I don't know if you did, Monster, as to if he's doing it because he thinks he has to do it to be successful yeah. at bodybuilding or if it was yeah. something where he was just, he loves red meat, or if it's maybe easy for him to cook red meat, you just take some red meat, throw it on the grill, take some red meat, throw it in the oven or put it in the pan. It's pretty damn easy to cook, pretty, pretty versatile. You can cook it a lot of different ways. I'm not really sure, but this is just dumb. Like to, to eat this much red meat in a day is really, really dumb. And I eat red meat, by the way. I eat red meat. Yeah, me too. And to be honest with you, I eat too much red meat because of this, because of what the reason I said, because it's versatile. A lot of the, the, the things that I make contain red meat. I like to grill on the barbecue and it's really easy to grill 
steak on a barbecue versus chicken because chicken is a lot more babying when you're when you're cooking chicken you have to flip it there's a high risk of charring the chicken but red meat you can slow cook it on each side you don't have to worry about you know undercooking it and getting salmonella and, and stuff like that so there's a lot of benefits when it comes to cooking if you like to cook to to cook with red meat but you know e eating red meat in excess is not healthy in his case i'm going to give you an example of what his red meat intake looked like on a daily basis so five meals a day meal one a pound of bison burger patty meal two a pound of broiled steak meal three two pounds of burgers on the grill meal four one and a half pounds of sliced sirloin meal five one and a half pounds of roast beef so that was that added up to seven pounds and that was that was pretty much his diet and yeah it's crazy and it's crazy expensive too we have to we have to factor in the economic impact of that where it was really really expensive so yeah mobster i said a mouthful um, give us your thoughts on this and then we're going to kind of get into his health issues yeah i mean where do you start first off we see this stuff on the forums all the time where guys talk about how they don't like vegetables and i think there's an element of that guys whether you like it or not some of you've been babied some of you've been babied into the point where you've been allowed to develop poor eating habits. Mummy, I don't like the green ones. Mummy, I don't like the yellow ones. So there's that, right? And I, I know it sounds a bit insulting, but it is what it is. Right? Uh, and and, and if, you know, if you're a parent and you're bringing up your children, uh, you, you're supposed to be feeding them for health. You're supposed to be feeding them for growth and to turn them into hopefully spectacular human beings that are going to do real well at school and work and life, et cetera. If you allow them to develop poor eating habits, if you feed them shit, sometimes that's because of economics, maybe you can't afford to give them really good fresh vegetables or, or, or clean meat or organics or whatever else. That, that's, that's, you know, that's a different subject matter. But when you are allowing them to develop these poor eating habits, you're not doing them any favors. You know, little Johnny doesn't like baked beans. Well, little Johnny should try baked beans now and again. It won't kill him, you know, and, and you know, he might not like sweet corn. Eat that damn so there's stuff I'm putting on your plate that I've had to go out and work real hard for. So there's an element in there. And like I said, ultimately, it shouldn't necessarily always be, and especially when it comes to bodybuilding, about what you like to eat versus what you got to eat in order to be successful, to make the best of your physique, whether that's in bodybuilding, whether it's in weightlifting or whatever else. Eating for function over eating for taste. In order for you, don't tell me if you're on a forum that you want to gain 30 pounds and then tell me you struggle to eat, what can I do? I'm always going to say eat more. It's as simple as that. Sometimes these things are simple, sometimes they're not. Now, the second aspect, which is something that we're going to get into specifically when it comes to the gear again in a minute, and Mike himself talked about this, and that was he, he kind of blamed certain things that he did in terms of his health, in terms of the issues that he ended up having, and in terms of obviously ultimately what killed him. And one of those things that he talks about was his steroid use. But come on, guys, do you think it's healthy to eat seven pounds of meat a day? We're not talking about one of those, like Steve's already mentioned, a challenge for 48. I've done a 36 ounce tomahawk steak a few times, but it's not something I do regular. Most days, it's, it's, it's more than what I would normally do to have an eight ounce steak. Sometimes I'm hungry. I can eat an eight ounce ribeye and I don't want another one. 
But for the most part, I'm not eating 16 or 20 or 32 or 36 or 48. This is just a now and again thing, guys, as a treat. Or even, you know, one of those challenges that some restaurants have. Come down and eat a hundred that steak. As Steve says, get, win a T-shirt, have your meal for free, get your name on the wall. Has to be eaten in 30 minutes, which is, it's, uh, that's not fun. It's just gluttony. It really is. It's nice to have your name up in the wall, get the T-shirt and have the food for free, sure. But really, you're just putting that food down, pushing it past your throat as quickly as you possibly can. So that's a now and again thing. But to do seven pounds of steak a day on a regular basis and to essentially never have vegetables, that's just fucked up. It's, it's about a thousand grams of protein. If it's just, if we said it was a hundred ounces, Steve, and we said he trimmed the fat and again, he took the bone out. And a hundred ounces is still a thousand grams of protein. Now, guys, I, I, I'm, I am not afraid, and Steve and I would disagree on this. I would probably, I'm okay with having protein powder after training. I was drinking one when we started the Zoom call to record this podcast. I, it's not a problem for me in having, you know, supplemental protein, for example. Steve and I dispute it. It it's always going to be better if you can get it from food, of course. But I'm too damn lazy to cook this straight after the gym. So I have a protein shake. And that's probably going to be 40 grams of protein. I probably, I, I don't think I exceed for the most part, and I'm one of the bigger guys on the forum at the minute, just in sheer size and body weight. I don't think I exceed 300 grams a day, and I probably have less. Uh, I'm not out there grafting. I'm not, up, you know, working down a steelworks or wherever else. So it's a bit different. If I was doing those things and I wanted to maintain my size or if I was competing bodybuilder, I might need 300 grams a day. But there's some of you guys who lack Jay Cutler-esque genetics. You don't need 400 or 500 or I think even six or 700, as we've seen some pro bodybuilders discussing. And I think that's probably the element there, Steve. When you refer to uh, 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 why he was doing it, I think the more protein was better was very, very much a 90s thing. So we were seeing stuff like a 1,000 grams of protein considered normal. And to be fair, for the most part, most of those guys were having two to three pound of steak a day and getting the rest from protein powders. No, that changed. So there are certain fashions and fads in bodybuilding, and I think he was probably guilty of taking part in a fad at that time. Protein above everything, but in this case, it wasn't above everything. It was the only thing, and it isn't healthy. You can do it for short periods of time. We know that the human body is incredibly adaptive, but if your activity levels are confined to just the gym, uh, you're not going to burn your way through the amount of calories that would be in seven pounds of steak. That's number one. Is he doing cardio? Is he riding a bike? Is he running up and down the beach? He might be doing 40 minutes or an hour of cardio, but really this is to burn off that much cholesterol, to work your way through that much steak fat. You need to be doing other stuff at the same time. And I mean, it's just, just to put it crudely, guys, he must have been bound something chronic, Steve. He, he would probably be constipated after fucking time because that amount of meat with no roughage, no 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 fibrous carbs going into your colon. Oh man, honestly. And then was they one of the things that I talked about in terms of his health was the cholesterol levels and the blood pressure issues that he had. And the argument when he passed away was was the seven pounds of steak per day, and it was all different numbers being thrown out at the time partly responsible for his death or was it the bodybuilding lifestyle which is still includes high protein but then also includes 
the steroids and the other elements of the lifestyles, especially again of 90, 90s bodybuilders. And let's be honest, I don't think it matters how nice of a guy, and trust me, as I said, I've seen him in seminar. He's a really nice, friendly guy, comes across incredibly well, really, really well on stage. You're still going to be guilty of some of the mistakes that other bodybuilders like yourself are making. And the idea that you need to have seven pounds of steak a day to maintain 250, 280 pounds of mass, it's just wrong. It just is. And something which we're going to get into, and again, Mike himself came to appreciate, but unfortunately, self had already gone at that point, where he started to give out advice on health. And pretty much admitting that he hadn't focused on health himself and that you need to look outside. And again, guys, this is a comp, it's a toss up between the extreme lengths that a top bodybuilder or any top athlete needs to go to, and we've discussed in the previous podcast, to be that person, to be number one in your sport versus 99.9% of people that are listening to this podcast not having those genetics, not competing at that level, not doing that stuff. That might be, for example, Steve, if you're one of those guys that gets helicopters up, up a mountain and skis on fresh snow and you're 10,000 feet up, there's a good chance if you're on fresh snow, you don't know if it's going to have an avalanche. You don't know where the snow is over the rocks. You could get killed. You could be doing 100 mile an hour on some slope, et cetera, et cetera. The risk factors are there. That's what X Games, et cetera, is all about. The crazy stunts that some of these guys do. And so arguably the extremes that bodybuilders take, especially at the very top level, where they have an opportunity, arguably, to be the best bodybuilder in the world versus the rest of us who aren't. I'm not up 10,000 feet skiing down a mountain. I am not going to be Mr. Olympia. Steve's not going to be Mr. Olympia. Not even at our best. Not was I going to be, I wasn't going to be the world's strongest man and Steve wasn't going to be the world's greatest powerlifter. We were very good for what we do. We're better than average, but we're not consuming seven pounds of steak a day to make that kind of stupid stuff happen. It, and most of you don't need to do it either. And again, Mike himself admits the same thing. Let's get into that part and also into the specifics of the steroids. Oh, but one more thing before we go, sorry. So I've seen him in seminar. Uh, and, and something I want to do is on the side, nothing to do with the health, et cetera, et cetera. And I've already mentioned how great he was with the crowd and so on. So as an example, Steve, this is the mind into the muscle kind of stuff that, that sometimes you read about in magazines. And I believe even Sam Fussell mentions it in uh, Diary of an Unlikely Bodybuilder when he talks about seeing a pro backstage who's coming at the guest pose and they hadn't brought decent amount of weights for everybody to warm up with. He says, so is this professional bodybuilder who has that kind of response, is curling a 10-pound dumbbell and is able to put his mind into the muscle so much that he's able to get a really, really good contraction. And Sam says, looking at him, I could see the muscle pumping up before my very eyes. Mike had that. I've seen it. It comes out to do the seminar. He's chatting away to the crowd. Then he goes off and he pumps up for two minutes with a couple of dumbbells and whatever else. And he comes out and he looks kind of flat, Steve. And then he's able to make his muscles pop. Now, there's a little bit of holding the breath and, and sort of forcing the blood into the particular thing. But he was able to do that. And veins that you hadn't seen briefly before suddenly appeared. And this wasn't just a question of flexing them and then they popping up. It was something he was literally able to do before your very eyes. Whether that's holding the breath, as I say, or squeezing a muscle, or just having that kind of connection to what you're able to do. He did it with his calves which were already freaky, and there they are popping out before our very eyes. 
and he did it with his arms. And it was something that I hadn't seen with even guys like Lou Ferrigno and other, other athletes that I'd seen on stage. So, and, and in a particular, in the Mike Matarazzo seminar, we were very lucky to be very close. There was only, I think, about 100 people, but we were real, real close, teared up. So I don't think even the furthest away was more than 20 feet away from him. So you got to see the man up close, and personal, came across really well, told us some great stories, uh, one of which I told Steve off here. And um, yeah, his physical response and his ability to control his body was such that you could see this kind of stuff happening right in front of you. It was almost like, you know, he'd been inflated by an air hose and then the veins would come out on top of that sort of stuff uh, from looking kind of smooth only a few seconds before. So yeah, that's great. But yeah, let's get into the steroid cycle, Steve. And, and again, the specifics of what he said himself about his own health uh, later on. Okay, so you wanna, you wanna talk about the steroid cycle first then? Well, I was doing both because when we talk about the steroid cycle, I think we can do it before or after, Steve, okay. as, as we know. He it ties into it, him. yeah. So, yeah, so do, yeah. do the cycle and then we'll talk about what he okay. said. Yep. So there's a quote by Mike when discussing steroids. He openly admits they played a major role in his heart issues. And his quote was, put the drugs away. Only a handful of men on this entire planet make barely a decent living at bodybuilding. I happen to be one who did for 15 years, but I probably took 20 years off my life. It says no amount of money in the world is worth that. I'd rather go back in time and get a nine to five job and live to a ripe old age. Like my grandfather, I took the gamble and lost in every way. So he admits, Hey, he, he ran steroids very aggressively. He's trying to keep up with his competition. Top 10, Mr. Olympia pushed his body to the limit to get there. You know, he had top 0.01% genetics, but the guys who were ahead of him at Mr. Olympia had 0.001% genetics, you see? So that's the thing. And that genetic difference, he had to kind of go the extra edge when it comes to his diet, when it comes to steroid use, to try to catch up to them. And he did his best. You know, he almost got there but he came up a tad short so obviously with that much protein and mobster is right in those days they were obsessed with protein it was protein this protein that i need protein i need protein i need protein and now we look back and laugh um it's the old adage of the the guy who does the workout and he and he runs over after his workout to the you know to the protein bar at the gym and he's like protein protein it's like, it's like he's in the desert for days and he has no water going up to someone be like, water, water, does that. And then the lady, you know, she mixes up the protein powder and a little smoothie and then gives it to him and he, he drinks it all. You know, he's got to drink it all within, within five minutes. You got to drink yeah. the protein yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or your workout is a waste. Yeah, it's ruined. They, it's wasted. <laughs> they believe that bullshit because in the 80s, you yeah. had these morons writing in these bodybuilding magazines trying to sell protein powder. So they convince people that you need a shit ton of protein every day. And we know scientifically you don't, but in his case, because he was taking all the stuff, his body could at least partition a lot of what he was taking, but a normal person, you're not going to be able to, to nutrition partition all this shit. So of course, what was he taking monster ACH and insulin 25 IUs ACH a day, 15 IUs of insulin per day. That allowed him to at least take advantage of all that protein. Because you as a normal Joe, if you follow that diet, guess what? You're just going to get obese. You're just going to get fat and you're just going to get a heart attack. 
you know, I and mean, that's just that's just the truth. You're not gonna be able to shit, as Mobster said. I'm sure he was oh, taking yeah. fiber supplements. I know Boston Lloyd, he was taking a shit ton of fiber supplements every day. He was eating a shit ton of meat every day. He was taking a shit ton of fiber supplements. So obviously you wanted to jump in? Yeah, I, I, guys, when it comes to the protein thing, I know <clears throat> I'll touch on it very quickly. <clears throat> Biology and history. It's simple, guys. I think sometimes we imagine and bodybuilders are quite out there when it comes to diet. In fact, a lot of other sports have said that when it comes to diet, they look at bodybuilders because we're the guys that are manipulating macros. We're the ones that are playing around with different ideas and trying different things, including fasting, and, and seeing what it does to their body to produce this amazing-looking physique on stage. And so any other sport that can benefit from, for example, carbohydrate manipulation, water manipulation, whether it's you know making weight for, as a wrestler or a boxer, whether it's being able to sprint, you know, sub 10 seconds and so on and so forth, Steve, they look at what we do. And a good example of that is Usain Bolt talking about chicken nuggets, high protein, before running for 10 seconds. He doesn't need load of carbs. And so there's, there's elements that, again, is a freak. So there's, it's quite simple. And I've talked about this before. Steve's talked about this before. Biology and history. If we couldn't adapt to dietary concerns, dietary issues than a human race would have died out and it wouldn't have died out in the last 15 or 20,000 years when civilizations have been around it would have died out a million years ago when we stopped being monkeys and we stood up and separated away from the apes and started walking around and started trying to communicate because there wasn't supermarkets there wasn't protein powders none of these things existed so our ability to adapt to certain conditions is a million years old and the idea for example that we need to consume in the window the anabolic window of protein shake within 20 minutes is it's kind of silly within a reasonable amount of time but you won't starve you won't die and if there is going to be any catabolism it's going to be in on the issue of grams if not micrograms steve so yeah that that whole thing is is kind of pure old and a good a good example of this and these blokes, I kind of get where they're coming from. They're very keen. But if you've ever been to the Arnold or the Olympia or Body Power or any of the big exhibitions, there's nearly always a, a group, typically a buddy and his mate, but you'll see them all over the expo, in their vest with their muscles on, on display, weighing all of 150 or 160 pounds with their Tupperware tubs, their plastic tubs full of rice and tuna. And they're walking around with these things like they are pros when they're not. And the pro themselves is over there on a the stand work, work, working for six hours and maybe getting some sort of carbo drink or a cup of coffee to keep them going. Then they'll be hungry because they've been working for six hours and they go back to the hotel and eat some proper food. But very rarely will you see them stop halfway through signing photographs or posing or working a stand and get their little baby Tupperware tablet and scoop some rice and some tuna or some rice and chicken into their mouth because they know that their muscles will not vanish. But the younger guys have kind of got it into their heads that if they go to this thing, not only do they need to feed and eat like a professional, it's sometimes almost, almost that they need to be seen to eat and feed like a professional. And in reality, they're right at the beginning of their journey. And trust me, guys, it's not all going to disappear in a minute. Sure, you need a little bit more than most, 
but it is a little bit more than most. For the most part, your workout's only going to use 400 calories, maybe 500 if you do it a bit more. Uh, and you're, you're, you're burning 10, 15 grams of muscle, breakdown of muscle. And even then, it's not completely catabolized in the workout. And that's all that you're replacing. So trust me, guys, it's not one of those things where uh, most of you, not all of you, some of you will respond. It's just the nature of the beast. Some of us are freaks, some of us are not. But most of you don't need 500 grams a day. Most of you can wait for 50 minutes. You can go home and cook some real food. If you've got real food at the gym, so much the better. Even if it's sitting outside in the car park, it's still going to be better than protein powder. And I say that as a fan of protein powders. It's all exaggerated. And you have to say to yourself, I mean, it's quite simple, guys. Whether you believe a company is trying to flog you the products and trying to make a profit, or whether you believe it's something that you respond to, it's simple. Dorian Yates wrote stuff down in his diaries and if for example dorian wrote down i had an extra chicken breast today i did that all week and at the end of the week i was up half a pound and my biceps were fuller then an extra chicken breast a day is working but if for example you're consuming a thousand grams of protein a day and you're no bigger than you was before then a thousand grams of protein isn't what you need it's as simple as that and for the most part most of you could do this experiment and you will not put on four inches on your arms. You won't be 300 pound monsters. That's just the facts. And like I said, history and biology, history and biology. You don't necessarily have to change the rule when it comes to the human body and our metabolism and our ability to absorb nutrition and whatever. And, and ultimately realize that loads of things work. And if they didn't work, we'd, we'd have starved. Every time there was a famine, every time there was only one food to eat, and so on. Our bodies don't work like that. The human anatomy doesn't work like that. And just because you lift weights, it doesn't change biology. Bad news, Yeah, we didn't have, like Mobster said, but you know, back then we didn't have farming. Farming didn't nope. start until maybe the past five thousand years. Uh, but I'd say a little bit more than that, Steve. But you're yeah. still only talking five thousand BC. I would say, yeah, five thousand BC. Uh, but after five, the civilization is. If you go to the Egyptians, you're talking about 5,000. Yeah. If you say civilization is 10 to 20,000 yeah. years old. But most of the world didn't have so, most of the world didn't have civilizations. So, I mean, most no. of the world was living, basically, oh, you, were praying, you pretty much had your your clans that you you, you were with and your group. So, yeah. farming techniques where we, we, we put, you know, a, a fence around animals and, and grow in and raise animals and feed animals and yep. stuff like that. And then eat them. You know, that didn't come around. So it, it's not that easy to go in the middle of the jungle with a stick and hunt down a large amount of, of meat. Meat, yeah. You know, it, it really isn't. We didn't have the ability to do that. But what we did have the ability to do was eat small, small amounts of protein here and there, like grubs, maybe a rabbit, catch a rabbit. You know, they're easy to catch. Lizards, stuff like that. Yeah. We are omnivores, guys. We can eat different kinds of food. I mean, I don't like spicy, but most of you guys will be fine. We're omnivores. And omnivores quite simply means that we can eat fruit and vegetables and meat, that we can have fish from the sea, we can have birds from the sky. And it also means, as I said already, biologically speaking, we can eat from the plains. We can pick berries off a tree that we can eat. We can have fruit from the trees we can eat. We can pick grubs. We can eat insects. We can eat cows, we can eat rabbits, we can eat everything. We can eat, and pretty much if it doesn't, if it's not poisonous and if it's digestible, humans can eat it. 
So it's as simple as that. And if it wasn't, we would not, ex we wouldn't be having this podcast. You wouldn't be listening. We wouldn't exist as a species. It's no more yeah. or less complicated than that. There are animals out there. Of course there are that aren't omnivores. And that's part of, maybe arguably the reason why we are the most dominant species. We're not even the most numerous, but the most dominant species because of the effect that we have on ourselves, on animals and on the planet. It's the re because we're adaptive, because we can do those things. And the argument comes down to bodybuilding versus human beings. And the argument is null and void. You are a human being. You are not biologically different. And, you and we have not biologically changed that much, if at all, since we've been able to cultivate crops, since we've been able to corral animals. So in the last, arguably, even if we took it to the extreme set of the last million years that humans have existed as recognizable humans, 40,000 at the most of those years is when we might have been cultivating, when we might have stuck by places that we said there was good food here, there was good fruit here, we don't need to go anywhere else. We weren't roaming the plains and the mountains and the valleys. We weren't fishing. We weren't doing any of those things. We just got lucky uh, and, and, and civilization began to occur. And then we started having farms and cultivating specific wheat crops, for example, and even making, I think, 5,000, 8,000 years ago, we started making beer and things like this. Our bodies are the same as before then. They're more or less the same, biologically speaking, and certainly when it comes to digesting and absorbing food and nutrients, as it was half a million years ago. So there's no change there. Therefore, what we were able to do then applies to us now. So sometimes it really ain't that complicated. Mike Mensah talks about the fact that if you talk to a nutritionist, the upper limit of what they would talk about, most people requiring is around 90 grams of protein a day as a bodybuilder, arguably 110, 120. As an athlete, genetically blessed, maybe a little bit more, but 500, 600, 1,000, no, forget it. Anyway, let's get into the rest of the cycle, Steve. Guys, this is how it is. Uh, you don't need to be doing the kind of crazy stuff. Talk about the rest of your cycle, Steve, and then I'm going to get back to something else that he said himself again, addressing specifically what he was doing and how he felt about doing his cycle. So besides the HGH and insulin, Trembolone was a big hit, especially, you know, late 90s. A lot of guys are on Trembolone. Uh, Trembolone, usually, Trembolone started in the 90s. It really started yeah. to change bodybuilding. It was one of the big Sweet. pioneers of bodybuilding. So 1,200 milligrams a week of Trend, not surprising. 1,000 milligrams a week of Sustanon, not surprising. Um, 1,200 milligrams a week of Equipoise. It's a good solid steroid to throw in there. And then DECA. DECA was still being used in those days, 1,500 milligrams a week. Guys love DECA. It was kind of a bridge between the 80s and the 2000s DECA. I don't think guys today use DECA as much. Well, I don't think I know. Guys don't use DECA as much in bodybuilding today. They've kind of changed away from DECA. And then, of course, Proviron, 200 milligrams a day. They loved Proviron in the 90s. Anovar, they loved Anovar. 80s was, <clears throat> was when they really, really, really loved Anovar. It got banned. It got brought back two years later, very, very expensive steroid. And guys did what they could to get a hold of legitimate Anavar in the 90s because they loved it. Anavar is one of their favorites, doesn't bloat you. It's it's got fat burning properties, especially when you abuse it. So 150 milligrams a day of Anavar is not unheard of. I'll throw in a DMP diuretics. They were big on DMP in those days. It was a popular one that they 
is a popular drug that they mess around with. And then painkillers and fiber supplements, unfortunately. Well, fiber supplements with all that meat, obviously he needed the fiber. If he didn't, he would have had to go to the hospital and he would have been backed up. He wouldn't have been able to go to the bathroom and be constipated. And yeah, you can kill yourself being constipated. There's guys who try to survive in the bush of Africa. And in the bush of Africa, mobster, it's basically just dry. And the only thing you have access to is red meat in the bush of, bush of Africa. That's why people don't live in the bush of Africa because there's no food sources as human beings. We need other food, food sources. All they have access to is the deer-like animals that they can you know, put an arrow through and they're pretty easy to catch with an arrow. And if they're basically, they're a pussy, they'll take a gun and they'll use a, a rifle to shoot them. But that's not primitive survival, you know. Use a bow and arrow, you know. Don't be a pussy and use a gun to shoot a fucking deer. Okay, you're not you're not impressive. But for those that want to survive out in the bush with a bow and arrow, deer are pretty easy to catch. So they'll eat a lot of. I hope, in their case, that they're eating the organs of the animal because if they're just eating the meat muscle part, that's where the where they get the constipation. And since they're not consuming any fiber, being out in the bush. There's no fruits or vegetables to consume in the bush, then you're pretty much screwed. And that's why you see guys, you hear stories of guys surviving in the bush for a couple of weeks and having to get evacuated because they can't shit out that meat yeah. that they're eating. So that's that's what ends up happening. And then you combine that with the fact that it's very dry in the bush and water access. <laughs> there's not good water access really anywhere in Africa. There's no good water access. So now you're not only dehydrated from not enough water consumption, but now all that red meat that you're consuming gets you screwed. So Mike would have had to drink a shit ton of liquids every day and take a shit ton yeah. of fiber supplements. And the ease analog steroids that he's using, mobster, don't help his gut situation. They make it worse because uh, of all that inflammation. So, um, Steve, yeah, I'll jump. I'll jump in here, Steve. Yeah, I mean, jump in. Yeah, we'll get into this. The cycle is very, very typical of what nineties bodybuilders were doing. So I don't think we're too far off the thing there. And when it comes to the DMP, something rearing its head, uh, not mentioned here, but we've talked about it on other podcasts, Newbane. I don't know necessarily that it was something that Mike would have tried, but it certainly was a nineties thing and into the early two thousands that the guys were experimenting with and the idea that you needed to do take these drugs in order to succeed. I agree a thousand and one percent what Steve says about the fiber and the liquid intake. In fact, perversely, and it's one of those sort of random uh, things that comes up, but there was an uh, article often repeated by uh, I Fucking Love Science on uh, Facebook, a page there, group, and it came up with a uh, MRI, Steve, would you believe, of a man with what appeared to be the world's biggest shit stuck up inside him. And it was that bad, it, honestly, it looked horrendous in the photograph, this great mess that his legs had started to tingle where the mass was pressing on nerves inside his body. I'd imagine some poor doctors had to go in rectally and loosen this beast up, uh, sort of cutting him open, just the mind boggles. But this, it, Steve's quite correct. The two things that happen in certain places, whether it's the Amazonian jungle, or whether it's the Afri- African veld, or the jungle again, and the forest that they have out there, uh, you either die for dysentery or constipation. It doesn't seem to be a happy medium. And this is, comes down to the lack of, of accessible fresh water uh, and, uh, Steve, the rest of the diet. So, yeah, 
I mean, as a good example is, Dave, let's, let's address something which I touched on very quickly. And that's something himself said, right? And I want to read this line out as is from uh, the article because it's a direct quote by Mike, right? So this is talking about his health problems before his death, Steve. You've touched upon this already. I'll read the whole thing. So I'll do the whole thing and then we'll discuss it. There's an actual quote by Mike talking about his art problems before his death. Oh God, where do I begin? I have to say that everything that led to my heart problem began the minute I started getting serious about competitive bodybuilding. To get bigger, which Steve's already referred to this part, I'd eat five, six, seven pounds of meat a day, no vegetables, and I stay away from fruits because of the sugar. The bit that we're gonna get into now is this. The worst was the chemicals. I have so many memories of being alone in a hotel room the week five or even two days before a contest and doing unspeakable things to my body. Now I'll cut out here for a second, Steve, and say that other bodybuilders have talked about this. I can think of Pete Raminsky discussing the crazy amounts that he said he's did up to 10 grams uh, for brief periods of time and literally talking about uh, being on a drip in his hotel room, trying to achieve a certain look. I'll continue. Steroids, growth hormone diuretics. Again, guys, this is from the horse's mouth. This is not us guessing which we often do with these things based on an educated guess and our knowledge of the sport. This is from Mike himself. Again, anything and everything that we did as bodybuilders to achieve a certain look, he goes on. It affected my whole life. So to all those guys who are on an eternal quest to have 21 inch arms and 20 inch calves and who are so vain about their never say die attitude, I say, change your attitude. Worry about keeping that body of yours as healthy as possible is going to have to last you, not just for your next contest or to the end of your bodybuilding contract, but for a long time. And for a long time, a human being, your time in the sport is nothing. I'm, I'm adding a little bit there, Steve. It goes by real quick, even quicker when your health is gone and you have nothing to live for. But it's quite simple, guys. We these, these podcasts ain't called hardcore bodybuilding or hardcore podcasts because we, 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 we run away from the things that hardcore bodybuilders do, and especially hardcore competing bodybuilders, named bodybuilders that are trying to be, as I said earlier, the best in the world. So we don't skirt those issues. We don't hide from those issues. Equally, we give you advice. And this is coming, as I said just now, from the horse's mouth. This is Mike saying I wanted to be the greatest bodybuilder. I did things to try and be the greatest bodybuilder. And then I regretted it, not because I didn't achieve being the greatest bodybuilder, because he had a hell of a career and he was incredibly popular. Like I told you, he was a likable guy. I've met him at seminar. He came across really, really well. He came across and fantastically well on stage. He was popular, just posing and looking like he was having fun. But at the end, he regretted it, and he regretted it, guys, because he knocks, as he said himself, a minimum, an absolute minimum. I'd actually go further to say probably 40 years off his life. He was saying 20 when he was unwell, but when he died versus when he could have died was a minimum of 30, possibly as much as 40 years gone versus what he could have had. And this is a problem sometimes, and I'll get into the specifics of it, when you're younger, and Steve and I have been guilty of this too, we aren't looking way off into the future. And that applies to just life, not bodybuilding, but life in general. You're not thinking when you're a teenager, 
what it's going to be like, except maybe as it comes up as an idea for you to write about it at school. You're literally not thinking about what it is to be like when you're old. You're not wanting, you're not thinking about what it's going to be like when you're 35 and at your peak of your mental and physical powers, if you're an average Joe. The, the greatest height you're going to have, the strength, the strongest you're going to be if you don't train, and probably the height of your career if you're successful in that particular arena. These are all around 30 to 35. You're a teenager and you're not thinking like that. You're, you're, you're thinking to the next birthday. You're maybe thinking to next year. You maybe thinking to when you leave school. When you are in the midst of, as Mike was, your career as a bodybuilder, as an athlete, whatever it is that you want to achieve with your body. You're not always thinking of the future. You're not always thinking of what happens after you finish the sport. This is why we see an enormous amount of athletes incredibly well paid and they put no money away for their pension. They put no money away for their old age. They make bad decisions when it comes to investing. Now, when it comes to your body, the same attitude can apply. You're not thinking about your health. You're only thinking about that thing that you've got your head on, that what you're focused on. So the advice then becomes, and this is from Mike, is to think of the future. Don't consume, even if it was only fruit, Steve, it would still be the wrong thing. Even if it was only one kind of vegetable, it would still be the wrong thing. But seven pounds of meat a day, arguably that and the other aspects of the bodybuilding lifestyle, the extremes of training, the extremes of being dehydrated, therefore lacking water to pass that seven pounds of meat through, not eating vegetables, which he himself admits to, not having fruit because of the sucrose, he was that worried about it, whereas in moderation, it's perfectly fine. Not having a varied diet because the body's so adaptive, like I said, and then the chemical part. And unfortunately, as we've talked about here, you're then into what began to be what we call now the mega cycles. And it was just a thing of his time. So those combination of factors, and him not having one eye on the future, the end game, what comes after. And, and, and if, you know, it's, it's just, you need to have a simple, I want to be big and muscular and strong for as long as I possibly can. 57 now. I want to be still being able to do some stuff in the gym, Steve, and have reasonable health and hopefully better health than most when I'm in my 60s, when I'm in my 70s. I might not be 300 plus pounds when I'm in my 70s. I don't expect to be. But if I was 200 plus pounds and still reasonably healthy, that'd be pretty fucking good. If I was 200 pounds reasonably healthy and still stronger than the average Joe because I've trained all my life, that would be fucking amazing. So I have to start to think about those things. I started thinking about those things when I hit 40. Mike, unfortunately, never gave it any mind. And he ended up, as I say, knocking at least 30 years off his life. The idea, I mean, just as Steve said, I mean, we could kind of joke about this thing, but the idea of being that kind of constipated for fucking years, having to sit, I don't even want to think about how hard it was for him having shit in the morning. That's just mind boggling. And to, to with, if, if you joke about that, you can't joke about the fucking damage that that, and the steroid cycle, the PED cycle, would have done ultimately, because you're talking about a sort of like a double whammy when it comes to not only you pushing what you're doing to yourself with super chemicals to create a kind of hyper anabolic, hyper crazy, hyper testosterone level environment, 
You're also throwing diuretics, which were incredibly popular at the time. You're putting DMP to the mix because it was something that people started to look at. Maybe Mike did, maybe Mike didn't. It's like Steve says, you're, because you've got zero vegetables in your diet, you're having to take fiber supplements. Otherwise, you can't literally take a shit in the morning or you're sitting in with veins bulging on your forehead. And then you've knocked 30 years off your life and you regret it. You had a hell of a time on stage. You're a crazy, crazy popular bodybuilder. You are a really nice guy to meet. And then you're dead. That's 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 how sort of shut it is, Steve. That's how sort of hard and fast this conversation becomes. You can say great things, great things, Frank's is dead. That's simple as it. And, and, and dead because you fucked up. Dead because you didn't have that eye on the future. Dead because for some perverse reason you didn't have you didn't have a single vegetable. You weren't even eating something some kind of mashed yam or yashed sweet potato or some kind of something that most of us now not even a banana's teeth nothing that that's the mind boggles i might not sit down i don't know about you but i might not sit down and have vegetables or or my five every day of my five daily things i'm supposed to have you know red green fibrous fruit and all that and vegetables i might not have those things but they're certainly there in my diet i don't run away from them there's nothing i can't eat if it isn't spicy so, you know, the fruit for me is not a problem. Grapes, bananas. I don't, I, it, to me, it's mind-boggling, Steve. And I think it's the thing where we, you have to balance what your aspirations are, what you want to achieve versus health. And that's in the now, never mind in the future. But also, as we say, and Mike's telling you with an eye on the future, is it worth having seven pounds of take a day in order to be a great bodybuilder and taking... 30 years of your life. Is it worth doing five grams? Because that's what the guys were doing then. That's when it started. And the other drugs. And less, and living less the life that you could have done. Uh, so, yeah. It's, and this is with world-class genetics. Steve. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's just not necessary anyway. I mean, let's not act like if you eat seven pounds of meat, red meat a day, you're going to turn into a bodybuilder. And it doesn't, it's just not necessary. Like he was following a really dumb diet and he was too stubborn to read about nutrition. There's no legitimate nutritionist in the world who's going to tell you that eating seven pounds of red meat a day is good, good for you, much less it's going to turn you into a Mr. Olympia champion. It just doesn't work that way. Um, and that's just not how it works. So, you know, look at, look at Big Rami. He eats plenty of fruit. He eats plenty of vegetables. Uh, we know that he does fasting. We know that. I mean, he look look what he, he he's doing. So um, it's just one of those things where someone got in his ear when he was in his twenties and told him, "Yeah, you got to eat all this red meat." He, he believed these magazines. I mean, the people who write wrote in these magazines in the eighties—they're fucking morons. You know, they 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 never cited any studies. They just post. It's just trust me, bro. Because in those days, you can write anything in a magazine and there's no way to cross-check it. Now we can go online and we can cross-check stuff. So yeah. they weren't qualified. They were just some fucking meatheads who knew to stick steroids up their ass. And it's they had no... They had no... It's no yeah. no nutrition background. Yeah. I want to jump in just for a second, Steve. There's, there's, oh, I mean, we see this with women's magazines. We see it with men's health magazines. We see it even with magazines occasionally like GQ. Or even your national newspaper. It's an attention-grabbing headline. 
and it's a good example of this, which we've seen in magazines, many, many magazines uh, for the, the mass market would be six weeks to a beach body, 12 weeks, the great abs, that kind of stuff, or the three minute bicep routine. It makes for an amazing headline, but for the most part, guys, it's bullshit. And like I said, logic is biology and history. If, for example, in the 90s, someone sat down with Mike and said, you need to have lots of protein, Mike, to be a great bodybuilder. If you want to win Mr. Olympia, you need to be having at least three pounds of steak a day. And Mike goes, well, if three pounds is enough, then surely six pounds is going to make me an absolute monster. Logic. But it's not, though, is it? It's not. It doesn't work like that. And it doesn't work like that because human anatomy doesn't work like that. Human biology, human physiology doesn't work like that. If it fucking did, then the early man running around the plains of Africa with his spear, like Steve said earlier on, and throws it into one of those things that looks like a deer, an antelope, a gnu, or whatever. And him and his buddies come running over, and they get their knives out, and they cut that thing up, and they ate it on the spot, which is how a very early man used to do it. Or sometimes they would bag some of that meat up, and they'd run back to where they'd left the women and the kids. And they shared the meat out. And they had no way, early man again, guys, to preserve this. That came later. So they would eat all of it. They would eat as much of it as they possibly could. They would all have pounds of meat because they were hungry. And then they would lay down and sleep, the same as we all do when we've had a big meal. We're not in a rush to go anywhere, even though we've got all those calories inside us. And we'd let that thing digest slowly into our gut, the meat especially, works on that basis and eventually having slept off the mill and partly digested it we get up and have a bit of a walk around we're still not hungry we still don't have to go off and, and grab another gnu or another antelope but who knows where the next meal is coming from so we'll start walking towards the, where we think the next animal is and maybe we won't catch one we're still sluggish and eventually the meat digests and we feel good and the, and the protein and the carbs and everything will rest it into our system you know, we've put on a little bit of mass because we're super skinny from being hungry. Hang on, there's another round. Let's go and get it. That's how human physiology works. It hasn't changed. But the 90s come up with this idea that more protein equals bigger muscles. And in reality, it kind of does, but it's a very, very, very small amount. It's like 10% more. So you're sparing. If what gets you through the day is 100 grams, then 110 grams allows you to grow. That's the kind of way that it works. It, if you're getting through the day on 100, you don't need to have 200 or 300 or 500 to grow. It doesn't work like that. And so there's this thing. And again, the same thing with the PED, Steve. You don't need. We talk to the hardcore forums and hardcore podcasts. We tell you as it is. And how it is, is you don't need to be running four or five grams a week. Most of you aren't genetically blessed. Most of you just need to run around the total around a thousand milligrams a week, total. And you don't need to be doing DMP. We said why. You don't need to be doing diuretics if you're not a professional model or a professional bodybuilder in the last parts of getting down in shape for a competition stage. And you don't, and if Mike with his genetics, with his family genetics, with his ability to be on the Mr. Olympia stage, didn't need to be doing those, those things, then it's incredibly unlikely that you do too. And again, he regretted what he did. 
He didn't have that high on the future. He didn't think about his health. Something Steve talks about online, and, and for that matter, Dylan, on the forums, we talk about getting blood tests. We talk about fasting. We talk about having time out. We talk about changing. We talk about varying the diet. We talk about having time off between cycles. And all these things are done to preserve your health, to help you gain size, to help you get leaner, to help you become more muscular, to help you get stronger, but equally to preserve your health, to keep your organs working well, to have you, to, as I said earlier, to be an old ass motherfucker, still training, still kicking ass in the gym, but being able to do that for 40 or 50 years, not knocking 20, 30 or 40 years off your life because we said, fuck it, go for it, being ho-ho and don't give a shit. Nope. Hardcore podcast or not, we still keep it real. We still tell you the truth. Don't you think, Steve? Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, that's how it goes. I think people are starting to realize that. I think our listeners are smart enough to understand all that. So uh, Mike, for whatever reason, he fell into that into that domino effect. And by the time he figured out, hey, what I'm doing is wrong, that's when he passed away and he only lived to 48 years old. And he was waiting for a heart transplant. So, and, you know, he had heart attacks. He had open heart surgery, yeah. you know, back in 2004, almost 20 years ago. So it really is not fair to his family what, what happened. Yeah. So just to get ninth place at Mr. Olympia, this doesn't make any sense. That's why he regrets it so much. So I give him all the credit in the world for, you know, admitting, hey, I was wrong. Because a lot of people, they go to their death just pounding the table i was right i was right fuck the doctors they don't know what they're talking about i've been right the whole time i know more than everyone else and that you know that's it so he was humble enough he had humility to change his mind and try to help others not make the same mistakes he did guys so the two mistakes as mobster alluded to let's be clear was his diet and was his steroid abuse and that's what led to him living to 48 years old. And that's what happens. You shorten your life hundred percent. You're going to shorten your life following this type of diet and this type of, of steroid abuse. It's as simple as that. So it's, it's one of these things where if you're single, you don't have family, whatever, but if you've got parents, your parents are the ones that are going to, that, you know, I hope I'm, I'm able to outlive my parents. That's, that's all I care about is I live with my parents and I don't want my parents to have to bury me. That's the worst thing in the world. So these guys who are dying in their thirties and forties or even their twenties, their parents are having to bury them. Their grandparents are having to bury them. It's just, that's, that's something they never get over. They never get over. It's really, really sad. And you don't want to put your parent, your, your family through that. So you can't be selfish like that. It's them that you're hurting. It's not yourself that you're hurting. So just hopefully, you know, you guys take that to heart and check out the article, read about this really, really interesting. But Mike overall was a fantastic guy. He was a hardworking yeah. guy. He just got led into the wrong direction, listening to the wrong people. It's as simple as that. So we give him all the credit in the world and uh, definitely rest in peace, buddy. You are a hell yes. of a man and hell of a bodybuilder. So mobster finish it up and go into the disclaimer. I think Steve's 100% spot on. I know I can think of local people where I live 
and discuss this with neighbours who would ignore the doctors and carry on poor dietary habits. And one particular person, naturally remain nameless, most of us don't know their name, was getting taken to hospital four times a year and having to sort of be sorted out and come home. And ultimately, it's kind of selfish because you're ignoring what the doctors are trying to do. They're trying, without getting to the semantics of what it costs, they're trying to keep you healthy. They're trying to keep you alive. But it is kind of a great, it's kind of selfish because you're taken away from the life that you could have had and you're doing that for those people around that love you and want you to live a longer time. And it's quite properly, uh, uh, before I get into the disclaimer, Mike 100% learned to appreciate that, but unfortunately too late. So he was open, honest enough, appreciated what he'd done and understood sufficiently that he gave you the same message that we've just given you. You need to look at your health. You don't need to be taking seven pounds of steak a day. You do need to eat your vegetables and your greens, guys. And you do need to be having half an eye on your future health. You don't need to be doing five, six, seven grams of gear a week. You just don't. Mike says you don't. And he was a top, top, top elite bodybuilder. And like Steve said, and like I said at the beginning, a fantastic athlete, a fantastic bodybuilder, incredibly popular and just seemingly an out and out nice guy and that's just from meeting him myself and seeing how he came across and how he was with people right guys as always please note we are not doctors and the opinions that we give on these shows are hours and hours alone it's our view and it is based on our experience and views on the topic our podcasts are for informational purposes and entertainment only the freedom of speech and the first amendment